good to see all of your faces this morning, to hear you singing. It's fun to see some new faces out there. And if you are visiting with us, let me extend a special welcome to you this morning. We're, we're glad you're here. As we are beginning a new school year, and we'll start into the Sunday school year here next week, we are also beginning uh, a new book of, of study uh, on Sunday mornings. We're going to be making our way through uh, the letter or the, the sermon, the address of 1 John. So let me invite you to turn there now. It's not the Gospel of John, which is near the front end of the New Testament. It's closer to the back of your Bibles, um, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John there. As we look at 1 John, as we study it, it's going to take us from now all the way up to the beginning of Advent, so all the way up to Thanksgiving this year. We're going to be asking what that letter has to say about who Jesus is and how we follow him together. Who Jesus is and how we follow him together. So as we think about what it means to follow Jesus, we're We're going to look at 1 John because I think it gives us some of the most basic, some of the most essential things about our faith. Helps us sort of get down to those first principles, those building blocks of what we believe. Katie and I have a a friend who is from northern China. His name's Guo. And... He's a few years older than us, and he, he happened to, to grow up in China during the time of the Cultural Revolution, the 1960s and 1970s. And if you know anything about Chinese history, you'll know that that's a time when China largely severed its relationship with the rest of the world, and particularly with, with Western nations. And so our, our friend Guo, he grew up in a small village in northern China, and his family uh, was particularly interested in him learning the the English language. They wanted him to know how to speak English. But because of the Cultural Revolution, he was a child at a time when it was forbidden to study that language in schools. No one was teaching it any longer. And so uh, they, they managed to find some old English textbooks that other people in the village used to own. And they, they got these books, they gave them to their son, and they told him to study it secretly, you know, to take it into his room and to practice on the weekends during breaks from school, and to teach himself these letters and words of the English language. And so he did this diligently for a period of, of several years. He studied this language on his own, day after day. And he, he got to the point where he was feeling pretty comfortable, you know, sort of fluent and conversant with this, this self-study project. Until finally, after several years, the, the political winds of change shifted. China opened up to the West again in the 1970s. And so contact with Western countries resumed, and so did the instruction of the English language in Chinese schools. And so Guo remembers a time when he, he heard a radio broadcast teaching Chinese children how to speak English. And they were, were reviewing simple words and phrases that he was confident he already had mastered, like cat and dog and I'm hungry and you know, this is my name and these, these sort of basic dialogues. But as he listened to the radio broadcast, he became more and more 
confused. Because for all those years, he had never heard the English language spoken out loud. He'd only read it to himself from textbooks. And he assumed that the way you spoke English was the same way you spoke Chinese or the way you read English aloud, that you simply took the letters and you read them sequentially. Right? In a character-based language, every character is sounded in a sentence. So, for example, he assumed that if you wanted to tell, tell someone that you're ready to eat lunch in English, you might say, I-A-M-H-U-N-G-R-Y. Right? You would string the letters together. Or if you were saying goodbye to a friend, you would say, S-E-E-Y-O-U-N-E-X-T-T-I-M-E. Right? He, he assumed this is how the English language was spoken in, in dialogue. And so when he heard this voice on the radio for the first time, taking all those letters that he had learned to pronounce, combining them into new sounds, blended sounds, rather than just strings of the alphabet. He didn't recognize this new language. He was confused. And he actually, you know, he ran, he ran to his father and he said, hey, what's going on? And, you know, it took them some time to understand what the difference was, what had happened. And so he actually had to go back and he had to relearn all of those basic building blocks about pronunciation and the way letters interact and, and phonics and, and all of these things. But once he, once he did that, once he got a, a good and solid basic understanding, then Guo soared in his knowledge of the English language. He actually later, as, as an adult, was able to come to the United States and pursue graduate studies. He went to Wheaton College, and he received a degree there. And he came back to China and was an effective leader in, in ministry for, for many decades in the city where Katie and I used to teach. But he needed that, that solid basis to begin with. The content of, of our Christian faith also has some important building blocks, some basics that we need to be clear about before we move on with things. And that's content that is established in the writings of the New Testament. We see it laid out there for us. What are the basics about following Jesus? And the New Testament in large measure, was a collection of writings that were gathered and, and formulated and, and, and written down near the end of the first century A.D. Either by apostles who knew Jesus themselves or, you know, sort of firsthand friends of those apostles who recorded their experiences. And, and so by the end of the first century A.D., the, the Christian message had gone out. It had traveled. It had expanded into places like Egypt and the cities of Antioch, the city-states of Greece, was even gaining a foothold in the, the capital of the empire in Rome. And there were all these little communities of, of witnesses, of new disciples, left behind by those first apostles and those they had passed along the faith. But eventually it, it came to the point where there was only one original apostle left living, and that was the apostle John, John the Evangelist. And he, we believe, lived well into his 80s or 90s. He had a long life, 
And according to many historians, John lived with the, the early church in Jerusalem up until the point when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and really laid waste to much of Palestine, of Israel. And he fled at that point, and he moved to the city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, where there were a number of, of growing churches that had already been planted. And so John joined these churches. At that point in his life, he also took the time to record what we now know as the Gospel of John, right? to give sort of his, his uh, authoritative witness to who Jesus was and what he did, what he taught. If you've read the Gospel of John, it's, it's my particular favorite gospel. And John has this incredible way of expressing to us the glory of God in, in human form that comes to us in Jesus. How Jesus offers light and life and spirit to anyone who would believe in him. About what it means to be a, a son or, or a daughter with the living God. And how Jesus draws us into that relationship. But thanks, I think, actually in large measure to the, the effectiveness, the, uh, the gift that, God, that John had in communicating that story. The gospel of John spread widely. It became popular, gained a large audience, especially in and around the city of Ephesus where he lived. And the popularity of that writing actually gave rise to some misunderstandings about those most basic things in the faith. Some of those who read John's gospel took the ideas that were there, took parts and pieces of those ideas, and they began to craft their own version, their own gospel, their own vision about discipleship and what made sense to them. And they emphasized certain things and they kind of left out other things. And we don't know all of the details, but what we do know is that these new interpretations, these new sort of gospels that sprung up caused many in Ephesus to leave John's church and to start their own. They left behind the, the community that John was investing the final decades of his life into, and they decided to go their own way. And so as I've studied and, and done some research on this letter or this book of 1 John, which comes near the end of the New Testament. I believe this is John's response to that crisis, to those who were leaving the Orthodox faith behind and, and going in their own new direction. I think the book of 1 John is John's way of sort of, it's sort of a cover letter to the Gospel of John, but it's his way of, of saying as simply and as directly as possible, this is who Jesus is, and this is what it looks like to follow him. These are the basics that we need to know. What discipleship is all about. And so that's, that's going to be our goal as well. From now until Thanksgiving, as we move our way verse by verse through 1 John, we're going to be asking those same questions. Who is Jesus? But we don't want to just know that in the abstract. We want to know who Jesus is so that we also understand what it means to follow him today. So if, with, with that in mind, if you would open to the letter or the book of 1 John, let me pray for us as we read God's word together. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you that your message is not just one written in word. We thank you for the gift of written word. We thank you that it came embodied in you, in a living witness first. We thank you that you've given us the gift of your spirit to interpret it and to apply it, and that these words have the power to change us. Lord, I pray that as I preach the words of my mouth, I pray that as we hear together the meditations of our hearts collectively would be responsive to you and that that response would be pleasing in your sight. We pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Let me read to you, to start out, just the first two verses here. This is 1 John 1, 1 and 2. John writes, That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That's one heck of an opening sentence. Actually, we're only halfway through the first sentence in this book, right? It's, it's all these different phrases and, and words and adjectives all strung together. But if you've read the Gospel of John, if you've read the book of Genesis, and you're reading this letter, you'll notice that they all start in a similar way. John is very interested in communicating to us here that which was in arche in Greek, from the beginning. That which is the source of everything, John says. This is what I'm about to tell you about. This is why I've written to you. What was in the very beginning? What is the ultimate first cause? John is, is asking us to to perk our ears up and be ready to hear. And if you've read the Gospel of John, if you read any length of, of time into this letter, you'll know very quickly that this person, this power, this source that was in the beginning has a name. And it's the name Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God. Right out of the gate, John wants us to know that everything worth studying, everything worth knowing, everything that, that we want to possess in this faith begins with Jesus. Just like in John's gospel, the whole focus of this letter is on the person of Jesus Christ. And so if we have any aspirations towards spiritual growth, for deepening our understanding of the Christian faith, John says, Jesus is the content we must study. Jesus is the content of our discipleship. But if you look at these first two verses, you'll notice that, roughly speaking, verse 1 and verse 2 each provide a different emphasis on that content. They tell us something different 
about who Jesus is. And the first content of John's message is that Jesus is a human being. The Jesus we follow is embodied. The Jesus we follow showed up in history. The Jesus we follow, John himself can tell us eyewitness stories about. He can tell us what it was like to actually look at Jesus with his eyes. He can tell us about what it was like to touch Jesus or to be touched by Jesus or what Jesus did with his hands. He can tell us stories about the words he heard Jesus speak. According to John, Jesus is a real live human being who was accessible to our five senses. And I think he, he drills that idea home in, in kind of this explicit way in verse 1. Because for most of us, we, we remove ourselves from a human being for even one or two generations. And it's pretty easy to turn a human being into an abstraction. And we can take a human person and turn them into an idea or a cause or a set of values, or a political movement, rather than a person. But John wants us to know that when we think of Jesus, we should be thinking about a physical human being, first of all. When you think about Jesus, how physical is your picture of him? Do you picture Jesus with messy hair? Do you picture a Jesus with muscles? Do you picture Jesus with an actual personality? To John, these aren't just funny little, little, little details. You know, a sidebar. John says they're among the most basic content of our discipleship. To John, it is vital that Jesus is, is God in a human body. That he comes in every respect a human being like you and I. This is an important part, an essential part of the gospel. In fact, John, later in this, this book, will say that if we lose track of the humanity of Jesus, the embodiedness of Jesus, then we actually lose the Christian faith wholesale, full stop. We can't have a discipleship, we can't have a Christian faith if we don't have a human embodied Jesus. Because Jesus comes in human flesh, because he's a person we can know, that he's someone then we can imitate and become like. It's because Jesus is a human being that we can have hope of being remade into his image, the image of a new humanity, a redeemed humanity, the, the kind of humanity we were created to, to know and to enjoy way back in Genesis 1. content of our faith is that we follow a human Jesus. But there's a, a second component that John also feels is critical for us to, stand, un, to understand here. He wants us to know that Jesus isn't just human. He's also what John calls the word of life at the end of verse 1. 
And then verse 2, he, he expands that idea. He tells us that, that Jesus is not, not just a human being, but he's also that one who was in Arche, the one who was at the beginning of all things, and he's also the one who will be present into eternity future. Jesus came to the earth in human form. But his mission was to connect the heavenly reality from which he came to our earthly embodied reality, to join those two things together perfectly. And so if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we also have to understand what it means to follow a heavenly Jesus. We have to make space to recognize that the Jesus we follow isn't just a brilliant human teacher. Jesus isn't just a really good self-help guru. John says Jesus is actually the Son of God who comes and he makes the realities of heaven manifest to us. He, he pulls back the curtain on the heavenly realities. And he wants to draw us up into the power and the holiness and the love and the life that exist between God the Father and Son and Spirit. Jesus comes to fill up our human reality with the treasures of heaven. That's what this process of discipleship is about. So when we think of Jesus, one, we need, we need to recognize that he's a human being, that he is a person. But do you also connect to that person someone who possesses glory, someone who possesses healing, someone who possesses the light of the world, someone who is able to minister to the deepest hungers and desires you have? to bring all those things together in you so that you might know the newness and fullness of life in him. Again, in, in verses 1 and 2 of 1 John, I think we're given like a Cliff's Notes version about the content of our discipleship. But after giving us this core content, verses 3 and 4 go on to explain the context for that discipleship. This is what we're meant to know, what we need to know, what we need to expand and, and work into the very fiber of our being. But John says this is how and where it takes place, verses 3 and 4. It's continuing that same first sentence, he says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that. Right, now he's going to tell us why. Why is he writing? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. The purpose for this letter, John says, is both that we would know the content about who Jesus is, but also that we would know the context in which we might live that out, where it might actually make a difference to us in our everyday lives. And he says, the way that happens, the context is in fellowship. He says, I'm writing to you so that you might have fellowship with us. And the word he uses there is the Greek word koinonia. 
Again, that's probably a word you've heard used in different Christian settings. But it's actually a, a pre-Christian word. It's a, it's, it's a Greek word that had a wide usage. And it, it basically, at, it, at its sort of core, communicates the idea of partnership. Communicates the idea of having a common enterprise. Of having a mutual investment in something together with, with others. The Greco-Roman world was, was actually built around this idea of koinonia. Right? That people of the same village or people of the same city or people of the same state would invest themselves together into something greater than just themselves. They would build a, a culture or a society together. John says, discipleship always happens in the context of koinonia, a fellowship. You can't have discipleship if you don't have other people to share it together with. Following Jesus requires partnership. It requires common enterprise. It requires mutual investment. John's adamant, you cannot be disciples of Jesus by yourself. And so probably part of John's words here are directed to those people who would be reading this letter who have broken away from John's fellowship, from John's church. And in doing so, they've severed themselves from koinonia. Right? They've cut themselves off from John and, and John and his, his church's witness to the gospel. But in doing so, John says, not only do they no longer enjoy fellowship with him, and with his community, but he says they've also lost fellowship with something even more important. If you look at the end of verse 3, John says, not only does the gospel, not only does Jesus draw us into fellowship with each other, he draws us into fellowship with himself and with God the Father. The context of discipleship is both horizontal and vertical. And so when we engage in the act of following Jesus, we have to be engaged in both of these dimensions. We have to be committed to sharing life together with each other. But as we do that, and as we make Jesus the center of that, John says we get drawn up into this incredible relationship with the triune God. And it's through that fellowship that we experience this fullness, this completeness, this kind of overspilling joy in our lives. How do we hold those two things together? How do we practice the content and the context for discipleship here at JCC? Well, I want to give you some, some thoughts about how we might do that this fall with one another. For the last several months, since kind of the beginning of this year, a lot of our teaching and preaching has been focused around one of our core values, which is belonging, right? We, we did our table groups back in the spring where you, you sat together and shared meals with one another so that you might practice this idea of having context with each other, of sharing life together with each other. We studied the book of Ruth, which had a lot to say about what it means to be a spiritual family and to share our lives. With, with people that aren't just limited to our own households. 
But as we move into this fall, I really want to move into an emphasis on a second core value at JCC, and that's following Jesus together. We belong together, we're families together, we sit around tables together, but as we do those things, the goal is to know who Jesus is and how that changes the way we relate. And so I want to give you three ways that you might think about saying yes to having fellowship with each other this fall. Yes to deepening this this call of discipleship with each other. I want you to think about it this Sunday. Over the next three Sundays, we're going to hear some people share about ways that they've practiced these, these kinds of fellowship and the fruit that it bore in their own life. And then, sort of as the month goes along, we're going to be inviting you to, to actually communicate with us whether you'd like to take one of these or, or multiple of these steps toward, toward fellowship and discipleship with each other. So the, the first thing I'm inviting you to think about is to practice what I'm calling a discipling friendship with one other person this fall, particularly as we make our way through the book of 1 John. So in a few weeks, I'm going to start giving you two or three questions drawn from whatever passage we've read together on Sunday. And the idea would be to carve out 30 minutes somewhere in your week with one other person to, to read those verses together, to briefly talk about those questions, and then say, so what? How does this matter to my life? How is this good news to me? What does this change for me? Maybe that's getting coffee or lunch with someone. Maybe it's getting breakfast. Maybe it's just calling them up on the phone if it's too hard to find a physical time to meet with each other. But that'd be making a 10-week commitment to meet with one other person and study the book of 1 John. Apply that book to your lives. That's one idea. And if you have somebody in mind, great. If you don't have somebody in mind, you can just tell us, I want to do this, and we'll find somebody to put you with, okay? The second idea, a way to move into deeper fellowship with one another, would be to join a small group community this fall. We have a variety of small groups here at JCC, scattered in different locations. There's some in Shelburne, there's some in Jericho, there's some, you know, different, different parts of Chittenden County. But this is a great way to share your life together with other brothers and sisters, to share your hearts, and also to, to study and to grow in discipleship together. And so if you are not part of one of those small groups and you know you'd like to be, even if you're not sure where or how, you can let us know, hey, that's something that I'd like to do. Here's where I live, and these are the, the days of the week that I'm free. And again, we'll try to connect you with a group, or if we can't connect you with one, maybe we'll try to start a group that would fit what, you, what you're looking for. The third way that I would invite you to think about experiencing greater koinonia, right, common cause, mutual partnership here at JCC, is to consider serving on a committee or a ministry at JCC. Okay, many of you serve on two or three of these committees. But some of you, maybe you're newer to this community and to this church, and you're not quite sure where your gifts and your abilities fit. And that's okay, because we've got this amazing nominating committee and other people who know where there are needs, where there are spots, and they would love to plug you in. So we're going to be hearing about some of those needs and opportunities. And if that's something you would be willing to do and say, hey, I'm not even sure where I fit, but I'm willing to serve. I want to take that step. You can, you can let us know later this month 
and we will do our best to plug you in and, and to build that bridge for you. So I, I invite you to think about those ways of stepping into fellowship, closer into fellowship with one another, so that we can put our eyes on the content of that fellowship, which is Jesus himself.